For me, this time of year always brings throat coat tea out, so there we go. That's where I'm at today, uh, and so I just love having you here. I'm Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be able to greet you, and I was watching the kids up here uh, seeing uh, this week. Uh, we've been started, I guess, at Thanksgiving, started going through some photos downstairs. We're looking at um, just photos of our kids as they grew up, and um, and that's really sentimental when you start doing that, and you know, especially now that they're uh, gone or almost gone completely. And so, just watching these kids up here, I just want to say to you, parents, cherish, cherish this, okay? Uh, it's love how cute they are. They're not always that cute, you know. So, <laughs> you know, what? this is what I've discovered: is that it's harder raising adult children than any phase. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just where I'm at. Maybe uh, it seems like some of you are nodding your heads, right? Also, here's what I saw when we were when they were singing. I saw I could tell who had kids up here by you were lipping the song, you know, lip syncing along with the music as it was playing. That was wonderful. Uh, so this is a season of Advent, and as we said, as we set up the candle lighting, it's a time to commemorate the coming or the arrival of someone special. And so it's just it was just a common word, and then it was grabbed by the church, and then it used, was used to describe the coming of Jesus. But Advent also represents something else. It represents the longing that God's people had ever since the promise of the Messiah had been given, as they were longing for the Messiah to come. And so it also represents a time of waiting, a time of longing, it's a time to experience God for, and waiting for him to appear. Before Jesus came as a little baby and was born in this obscure village called Bethlehem, God's people, they were waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Well, then after Jesus came, and after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, God's people are now waiting again. We're in a state of waiting, and we're waiting on Jesus' second coming, when he promised that he would come again and make all things new. I want to read this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I love reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you haven't read his uh, biography, I want to highly recommend that, really a great book, and he's got a book on Advent as well, but he says this about this season, he says, Christ is knocking. It's still not Christmas, but it's also still not the great last Advent, the last coming of Christ. Through all the advents of our life that we celebrate runs the longing for the last advent when God says, I am making all things new. The advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's love, that picture, and it helps us to understand the season that we're in right now. See, there are some losses that time in this world never heals, never goes away. But in the world to come, according to what Dietrich said and according to what Scripture says, in the new heavens and the new earth, when the resurrection happens, when we're all resurrected to be with Jesus in heaven, there will be this moment when Tears will be wiped away, the Bible says, that sorrows will be no more, and that is our hope. That is the hope of Advent, and that's our hope of faith, and that's the hope we have in Jesus. So Advent represents a season of waiting. Now, there's a problem with that, right? There's a problem with waiting. Does anybody like to wait? No. No, and I think increasingly more as a culture, we like to wait less and less. 
So it's a problem. So you think about this. Have you ever felt disappointed that your life was not working out the way that you wanted it or the way you expected it to or the way that someone had told you it would? Sometimes it feels like everything is just going wrong, that nothing seems to be working your way, like your career, maybe your career. It's just not turning out the way that you hoped it would or you wanted it to. Maybe it's your aspirations. You had aspirations for family, or you wanted to be a family or have a family, but that's not unfolding, or maybe the family you have is not unfolding the way that you dreamed it would happen or wanted it to. See, what you're feeling is what happens in life, what we all experience. See, I used to believe this. I used to believe that there were storms that came our way and that we just had to be ready for the storms and we had to you know, kind of stand strong and stand into the waves and the wind, something like that when they came. And then we had the seasons where we could relax and it wouldn't be that way. But really, here's what I'm beginning to believe. I'm beginning to believe that life is just really a storm. It's not a season of storms. It's a storm. So there are times when you're in the respite, for sure, when you don't have the high waves crashing over you, but I don't believe that there's ever a time, a moment I can experience, have experienced where there wasn't something going on. There was some wave, some disequilibrium in my life that I was having to stand strong against. Life is just a storm where you're battered by the waves of brokenness. Now, I know in Christmas, you didn't come to hear that. You know, you don't, want, you don't want me to talk about that today. You don't want me to talk about the pain or the difficulties we have in life. But that's where God led us today. I actually had no idea. When I looked at Psalm 89 and picked this as our psalm for today, that it would lead us into the depths of looking at the difficulty of life. I was just looking at the first four verses, and they're wonderful. They're uplifting, and it's really, but it has 52 verses. 52. There's a lot more than just the first four. And I believe the question that Psalm 89 answers is this. How do you respond? How do you respond when your life is being battered by the storms of life? So just know Psalm 89 was a song, okay? It wasn't just a poem. It wasn't someone's writings. This would be a song that was written so the people of God could sing it together, could sing it out loud together. So up until now, the people of Israel had been doing pretty well uh, according to the kingdom that God had promised, that David had established his throne, his son Solomon had taken over, his son Solomon had built this amazing temple. They were having this season of prosperity and of flourishing and peace, and all looked like it was going well. All looked like it was going well. But now... Now they're finding themselves, as Pastor John set us up last week when he talked about Psalm 80, this is the time of the exile. This psalm was written in the time of the exile. They're in the middle of a storm of category five proportions, in the middle of that. So in Psalm 89, what we're going to do is we're going to tap into the pain of unfulfilled expectations and the sense of hopelessness we can have when it feels like God has abandoned us when it feel like, feels like God has turned his back. It's about trusting God in the darkest of the storm. Darkest of the storm. Psalm 89 shows us that we can do what we can do as we wait on God to follow through with the promises that we believe he's made. See, we're going to see 
what we can do when we're waiting for the promise maker to become a promise keeper. That's what we're going to see today. What we can do in this desert time, this dry time. Uh, and I was reading this week, and I came across this idea uh, of liminal space. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's, it's a spiritual discipline of experiencing liminal space. Richard Rohr writes about this, and I just want to read it because it really helps us to understand what we can do in this season. Liminal space is a unique spiritual position where humans hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is, when you have, it is when you have left or are about to leave the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It is when you're in between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run from this moment. Anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. And there's all kinds of ways that we can run. But what God wants us to do instead of running is to lean into him. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, grab your message notes. They look like this, and they're going to be helpful as we go along today. I've not included all 52 verses on here. In fact, we won't cover all 52. Uh, but you'll have, find the verses here that, you would, that we will cover. And if you have your Bible, this would be a great week to have it. You can open to Psalm 89 because I'm going to read some verses that aren't even on here. And it would be a great way for you to do it. I just want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one. This would be our Christmas gift to you. There's a bookshelf right out there. You can get some, get one and take it with you. At the top is our theme verse uh, for the series. And it says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, and so now what we're doing is we're looking at the promises that God made in the Old Testament, and specifically in the Psalms, promises of the Messiah. So no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So in Jesus, every promise that God has made is, has been fulfilled. And so through him, the amen, or so be it, is spoken by us to the glory of God. So we're looking at these promises, and we're walking through them, and today we're going to talk about the promise of love and how God always loves us. Now, there's a series of psalms in the book of psalms. There's 10 of them, actually. They're called royal psalms. And the royal psalms, of which Psalm 89 is one, if every one of those psalms has a dual meaning. And the dual meaning is, is they're talking about the blessings that would come on the current king, the one who would be king of Israel at that moment. But the dual meaning is they are also projecting, prophesying, making promises about what the coming king, the Messiah, would be like and who he would be. There are 10 of them in the Psalms. We're covering just one of them today. So it's written in the same period that John talked about last week as you walk through Psalm 80. It's a time of captivity. It's a time of exile. God's people, in a, and uh, has, they've been invaded by the Babylonians. Terrorist Babylonians have come in, and they have <clears throat> ransacked the capital city. Uh, they have um, crushed Israel's armies. Uh, the homes have been completely torn down, and they have been burned. The temple has been destroyed. Their leaders have been put to shame. The religious system has been disbanded. Uh, they have been taken now as exiles, and they've been moved out of their homeland, and they've been taken to a place called Babylon. And they were left defenseless and hopeless in the middle of the brokenness. And Psalm 89 was written as a lament. 
It was a lament to express their disappointment, their disappointment, the disappointment that God's people had when God seemed to be absent from their lives, when God didn't seem to be coming through with what he said. I put on your notes there, if you want a description of what it was like, you can read Psalm 89, 38 through 51, and this is the lament, and it's talking about, oh God, where are you? Oh God, why are things so difficult? Why are things so hard? So this psalm helps us to know, how do we live when we feel God has abandoned us? And I know you've been here. And I want to say this, if you haven't been, you will be here. There will be times, there will be pain that is so hard that you will wonder, how can I go through this? And God, where are you? And your faith will be tested and you will wonder, God, have you abandoned me? God, are you here? We've said several times in our series we've been in, I don't know why, but God has led us through Ruth and David and now into the Psalms through uh, our Advent season. But every time we seem to be in these series that we've talked about, that we've realized that the key to being in relationship with God includes me being able to shake my fist at God. It's an act of faith to shake my fist at God, to lament, to talk about how I'm not seeing him work in the way that I think he's promised that he would work. And so this is how the psalmist says it. This is the cry of faith. I just want to read two verses from Psalm 89 through the lament, and this is what the psalmist says. He cries out. Remember, this is part of a song, so they'd be singing this right now in, I think, a minor key. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where? Show us, God. Where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Where are you, Lord? Where are you? You promised, God. You promised that your steadfast love would be with us. Where is it, God? I just don't see it. This is the cry of every man, woman, and child as they've been trying to reconcile where they are and where they think that they ought to be, where they are and where they, what they think God has promised to them. And when they live in this reality, this desert time in the middle where it looks like God has abandoned them or he's not coming through at this time. I don't know if you noticed, I mentioned this just a moment ago, is that Christmas carols, uh, that we have different kinds of Christmas carols, we have Christmas carols that are written in a major key. Now, I'm not a musician. I was totally taught this by my wife, just so you know. <laughs> so you have a major key. And those songs would be songs that make you happy. Joy to the world. You know, songs like that. Hark the herald angels sing. And you just go on. It just makes you feel happy because they're in a major key. And we like singing those songs. But there are also songs that are written at Christmas time that are carols that are written in a minor key. Songs like... O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a song of longing, a song of wanting to experience and see, of desperation. There's another one called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. The guy was lamenting the fact that his son, his child had died. And then he hears the bells on Christmas Day, and he writes this carol. It goes like this. I heard the bells of Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and peal the bells loud and deep. God is not dead, is what those bells say, nor does he sleep. 
The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He said, that's what the bells say. And then he says, but this is what I feel. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You folks, reality is we have to have both. We have to have major key songs and we have to have minor key songs because that's life. And that's what the psalmist does for us. The psalmist takes us into both seasons. It has both joy and praise, and it has sadness and mourning. And so what I want to do is I want to quickly now, we're going to go pretty fast from this point forward, is I'm going to walk through and show us how God's love for us never changes and is always available to us in our times of waiting. So notice the heading I chose for this. It says, waiting in God's love. Not waiting for God's love, not waiting on God's love, but waiting in God's love, because that's the reality. We're never out of his presence. We're never out of his experience. We're always in his love. It's always available to us, and Advent is a time for our waiting to turn into hope as we learn to walk in his love. Three observations. The first is this. If I'm going to wait in his love, I have to anchor myself in God's presence. I have to anchor myself in the presence of God. Anchor myself there. So now we're going to get the fun stuff, okay? This is the major key stuff from verses 1 and 2. It says this. So the song starts out. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth, I will, with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. So when we anchor our lives, remember we're in the storms, when we anchor our lives to the presence of God, what we're doing is we're connecting to a lifeline that the psalmist says is God's first, his steadfast love. You guys notice how many times steadfast love is coming up? Started back in Ruth with hesed and what hesed love means and how hesed is a word that's a Hebrew word that's used to describe God, his character, and there's really no one way to interpret it, but we can interpret it with words like a loyal love, a committed love, a compassionate love, loving kindness, mercy, kindness, favor. All depending on the context, but they all describe a love that never fails, a love that's always there, a love that we can always stand on, a love we can always trust, a love we can always hook into and know that is there for us, no matter what we've done or where we are. And what God, what the psalmist is saying next, he says, and he's always faithful. So you can always trust him, even when you can't see him. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. And you can bank on him that he will do what he says he will do, even if it's not at this moment. And even for these people, it wasn't even in their lifetime. It wasn't even in their lifetime. Psalmist wants us to know that God's silence does not mean God's absence. Not at all. So don't despair when God's promises seem to fail, but it's okay to express what you feel, which we're going to look at next. Okay, second is this, waiting in God's faithful love, I will anchor myself in God's promises or in the promises of God. I will anchor myself in the promise of God. So next we look at the promise as it's hinted at here, and I'm going to talk about what the promise actually is, but it says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, and remember this psalm is dual. So this is chosen one meaning the king, but it's also chosen one meaning the Messiah. So I made a covenant with the chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, 
And so as they were singing this, they would be reminded of the covenant. We've talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at 2 Samuel 7, and it's called the Davidic Covenant, the covenant that God gave to David that from his seed that there would be an heir who would sit on the throne forever and ever and ever, ever. That's God's promise. Remember the story? David wanted to build a temple for God. He wanted to build his house for God. And this was going to be his crowning achievement. Everybody would remember David forever for the fact, because of the fact that he built this wonderful edifice and that everyone would come out and they'd say, look at the temple that David built. But God had another plan for David. He sent the prophet Nathan to David. And the prophet Nathan came to David and said this, you're not going to build a house for God, but God is going to build a house for you, and the house for you will be one that lives on for generations, and no one can knock it down ever. It'll always be secure. And we learned that's called the Davidic covenant. And so he would establish God's throne as an eternal throne. And so Psalm 89, you can read these verses at home this week, 19 through 37, they recount the entire covenant. They walk through the entire situation of the promise, both of the earthly king and of the coming Messiah together. So Psalm 9, verses 19 through 37, I encourage that you would read those this week. Maybe in your community group, you can read those out loud together. And then lastly, third, I will anchor myself in God's purposes, in God's purposes. So verse four then ends this whole section that's upbeat in the major key. And it says this, I will establish, here's this promise, I will establish your offspring forever. Would you underline establish forever build and build your throne for all generations? That's God's purpose. That's God's purpose. God says, I'm going to build a, pur- I'm going to build a house and the house I'm going to build is not a house that will crumble. I'm going to build a house that's a, des- that's a dynasty. It's a dynasty. Your offspring, your heirs, he's saying, will sit on that throne, and they will rule forever and ever. And those words, establish and build, are important here. They draw you back to the whole idea of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he made the Davidic covenant. So when we look at this, what are God's purposes? What are God's purposes? Well, what I want to do is I'm going to kind of wrap us up today uh, by looking at what I believe would be God's purposes that we can find in Psalm 89. Now, personally from all the reading I've done, that God has primary purposes in this world. And the first primary purpose that God has in this world is that he would always get glory. That's his first purpose, that he would always get glory, that people would always look to him and worship him. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and to worship him. So when I thought, well, then that's what the psalmist does. The psalmist walks us through, well, if that's the chief purpose of God, here's how you can live in the time in between, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when you're not sure you can. You can worship God. It's a song. He's giving us this song, and then out of this song comes a song that we can sing, words that we can own for ourselves. So I just want to give you three ways that we can praise God when we're in this waiting time, wondering where God is and what he's going to do. Three ways. The first is we can praise him for his majesty. For his majesty. Majesty. Just praise him for how awesome that he is. So 
realize that when we read the pages of Scripture, that God has a greatness to be on compare. God is overall. God is supreme. He is uncontestable. So listen now. These are the words that the people would sing about God's majesty. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of your holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. That's a song of majesty. It's a song of worship. It's a song that can lift you out of the brokenness that you're in, the difficulty that you face. Second is this. We can praise him for his power. We can praise him for his might. We can praise him because he's mighty. Mighty is our God. He has power over things, all things. He's control of all things. I can't tell you how much this truth helps me personally. God's in charge. I'm not. I'm not. Remember we did this during the series that we ran on David, where God, not, God, not. So he's in charge, and he's mighty. So this is the part of the song about God's power. Listen to these words. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crush Rahab. And this is a reference to Egypt, when God set his people free through Moses. You crush Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens... The heavens are yours. The skies, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, those are all yours. And yours also, the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. You created Tabor and Hermon, two mountains in Israel. They sing for joy. The mountains sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. We can praise God because he is all-powerful, all-powerful. And then third, we can praise him for his character. We can praise him for his character. The psalmist goes on and he describes God as righteous and just and full of steadfast love and faithful and he describes God's moral authority. We need to really listen that God has a moral authority that he wants us to live underneath, and he wants us to lift up and praise and worship because it's the best way to live. He goes on and says this in these next verses. Listen to this part of the song. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness or your moral authority or your rightness. For you are their glory and strength. 
So we're living for God's glory. And what the psalmist says is that when we live underneath God's moral authority, that we are his glory and strength. And by your favor, you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our king, to the Holy One of Israel. So those are three ways that we can all worship God. Those are three ways that what God wants us to do is he wants us to take our eyes off our circumstances, our eyes off our situation, our eyes off our moaning, our eyes off our groaning, our eyes off of our doubt, and take our eyes up and put them onto him. That changes everything. Changes everything when we worship him, when we come to him in worship. So the psalmist is just reminding the people as he wrote this song, when you come to worship, you need to be reminding yourself, you need to be singing this because your life looks like God has abandoned you. Your life looks like God is not there. Your life looks like that he is not fulfilling his promises. You need to remind yourself who God is all the time and that you can trust in him. And then he ends the whole psalm, verse 52. He says this, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. So now let's bring this to Christmas. Let's bring this to Advent. See, while we wait, while we're waiting, we can recall that all God's promises come true. The people that were singing this song did not see the coming of Jesus, but we know he came. This is what it says in Luke 1. It says, the angel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And then it works in the promise. It works in the promise that God had given to David through the prophet Nathan. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. God's faithful to every one of his promises. And the angel explains then to Joseph what's happening and says in Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God has promised us his steadfast love. He's promised us his faithfulness. And those promises are amen in Jesus. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together? God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to just rest in this passage this week. And then now today for us to be in it. And I just want to give us a moment that we can reflect and just a moment to express to you what we need to. So I just want to give us a moment of silence where each one of us would just talk to you about our circumstances and our situation. And maybe today that you just need to shake a fist at God. You need to tell him exactly what your circumstances look like and where you don't think he's working in your life right now. So just take a moment, just if you need to. God, you reminded me even this morning as I was driving here that in my waiting, the areas where I'm waiting, 
to see the fulfillment of the prayers I've prayed. See the moving of your Holy Spirit where you've promised. That what you ask from me is trust. And that's why we want to make opportunities to worship you, God. Because when I worship, when I sing, when I pray, when I read, when I give, when I serve others, it's all believing that even though I don't see it now, by my action, I'm showing that I trust God. And I place my faith in him. I refuse anxiety. I refuse doubt. I refuse fear. I refuse self-hate. I refuse confusion. And God, we come before you and we just say today, all of us would say together that we trust you, God, that you are our God. You are our God. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness reign forever. All of your promises are yes in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.